What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 25 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett, and I am right here in the heart of Los Angeles, the I Am Studios. And I want to quickly get into today's episode. Not only am I excited, but we got a ton of ground to cover. This episode is simple. Invented in LA. I was doing research, combing through lists of all the fun, fantastical, far-reaching creations to come out of LA. And I'm going to dive into my list of the top 10 things invented in Los Angeles. Let's get into it. I want to start out with something that, frankly, we wouldn't be here without. It's probably the most important invention of modern times. The internet. That's right. The origins of the internet are rooted in the USA of the 1950s, all right? The Cold War was at its height. Russia and U.S. head-to-head, big talk, big bravado, big missiles. Huge tensions existed between North America and the Soviet Union. Both superpowers were in possession of deadly nuclear weapons, and people lived in fear of these long-range surprise attacks. So, the U.S. government realized that it needed a communication system that could not be affected by a nuclear attack. Now, at this time... 1950s again, computers were large. You've seen those old images. They basically were like the size of a, of a small house, okay? They were expensive machines and they were exclusively used by military scientists, university staff, things like that. And to put the size in perspective, these things weighed a couple tons, all right? And, and the machines were powerful, but they were limited. And researchers grew increasingly frustrated because there just simply weren't that many. So researchers required access to technology, but they'd have to travel great distances to use these massive machines. So to solve this problem, researchers started something called time sharing. They'd access a mainframe computer through a series of terminals. But when you were doing that, only a fraction of the computer's actual power would be at their command. So President Dwight D. Eisenhower formed the Advanced Research Projects Agency, known as ARPA. This is 1958. And one of ARPA's projects was to test the feasibility of a large-scale computer network. Now, here's where L.A. comes into play. 1965, a man named Lawrence Roberts out of UCLA made two separate computers in different places talk to each other for the first time. This experimental link used a telephone line with a modem, and it transferred digital data using packets. And in 1969, Leonard Kleinrock, also of UCLA, developed a packet-switching network method of splitting and sending data. And he successfully used it to send messages to another site, And this ARPA network, or ARPANET, was born. So Kleinrock used a computer at UCLA to send a message to a computer at Stanford. This was the first message 
ever sent over what was the precursor of the internet. So he sent a message to a computer at Stanford and Kleinrock wanted to type in the word log in, but the system crashed after the letters L and O, but it got through that L and that O went through and that was the first message ever sent and the birth of the internet. So once this ARPANET, as it was called at the time, was up and running, it quickly expanded. 1973, 30 different academic military research institutions joined the network, connecting locations from Hawaii to Norway to the UK. And ARPANET quickly grew to become a global interconnected network of networks or internet. And it started right there in UCLA. Next up, the skateboard. Now, when I found out about this one, it kind of blew my mind because I thought it feels like the skateboard's been around a while. And I felt like I would have heard this story, but it was only when doing an LA in a minute episode that I found this out. It's been verified and this is pretty sweet. So listen, there had been primitive versions of what we now call a skateboard. And they, they had funny names. They were the knee coaster, the scooter skate, the flexi racer, the skeeter skater. But as they sound like, these were all kids' toys, and they were essentially scooters or for board or or boards for kids to ride on on their knees. Now, enter Bill Richards and his three sons. He had a son, Mark, in particular, who was using these toys and he was standing up on them on these on these planks with, with steel wheels. So Bill, being the responsible dad that he was, created what would become the first modern skateboard by attaching roller skate wheels to a wooden plank. And that changed the world. Talk about a pop culture revolution. This is the early 1960s and surfing was all over the place, right? Gidget, Beach Boys, and surfers were stoked by the opportunities to use these skateboards. So Bill Richards, on October 6, 1962, Bill Richards founded Val Surf in what is now Valley Village with those three sons, Mark, Kurt, and Eric. And though it was primarily, as the name says, a surf shop, this was what was now in North Hollywood, the first store of its kind to sell skateboards as more than just toys. And the sales were brisk. They went to the Chicago Roller State roller skate company with the idea of buying just the truck. That's the thing that attaches the wheels to the bottom of roller skates. And at first the company was reluctant, but they decided to tell the, sell these trucks to Val Surf who would attach these things to wooden boards. And these were the first official boards sold in the market. But everything Val Surf made, they sold and business took off. Besides walk-in customers, they offered skateboards by mail, which was genius, especially at the time. Now, the thing is, these skateboards weren't super functional. They weren't conducive to tricks. And even though they could ride on sidewalks and hills, it wasn't until Larry Stevenson invented the kicktail and Frank Nasworthy used a different material, urethane, for the wheels that skateboarding first became really mainstream. 
but it came to life here in Los Angeles. And by the time skateboarding was on the cover of Life magazine, by the time John Lennon was skateboarding, the United States had 15 million skateboarders and 100 million in annual sales. And it started right here in what is now Valley Village. Okay, now the California roll. And if you're a sushi eater... Maybe you turn your nose at the California roll, but I'll tell you this. That is the introduction for many people to sushi, and sushi is one of the great cuisines on the planet, so I'm all for it. Now, listen to this. The earliest mention of a California roll, at least in print, was in the LA Times, November 25th, 1979. And by December, the Associated Press had a story that credited an LA chef named Ken Sousa at the Kinjo Sushi Restaurant near Hollywood as the inventor. However, the historians of food, cuisine, sushi attribute the dish to a man named Ichiro Mashida, another sushi chef from L.A., who had a restaurant in Little Tokyo called Tokyo Kaikan. Now, according to the account, which is considered factual at this point, Mashida began substituting Toro with avocado in the off-season when you couldn't get Toro. Remember, times were different. You couldn't get all fish, all things, all years. So after further experimentation, Mashita developed the prototype. And this is in the late 1960s, by the way. And he noticed because avocado had the same oily, fatty characteristics as the Toro, he pulled it out, subbed it with avocado, and he replaced the seaweed that's traditionally wrapped around the rice with rice on the outside. So he hid the seaweed on the inside and rice on the outside. And everyone at least Americans who were turned off by the seaweed agreed that moving the seaweed to the interior of the roll made it more delicious and more palatable. He added toasted sesame seeds to the outside of the roll. So it looked like something fried and it turned out that it was 80% more likely to be consumed by an American, or at least that's what his internal research told him. And thus the California roll was born. Southern California fell in love with Machida's West coastified sushi in the United States, follow note, and so did the world. Now, the accounts of the first California roll describe a dish that's still a little different, okay? Early California roll recipes use king crab legs instead of the surimi imitation crab, which is available now. And the original prototype used cubed avocado, king crab, cucumber, and ginger in a hand roll. Now, some, his, some historians differ on this. In the original, they say that one account says that the cucumber, mayonnaise, and sesame seed were not on the original roll, were added later, and that the early California roll was also wrapped traditional style with seaweed on the outside, which American customers would peel off. Thus, that's the real reason why the inside-out version was developed. But either way, this is credited to Ichiro Mashida of Tokyo Kaikan, and it became a favorite in Southern California and the United States. And it was featured by Gourmet Magazine in 1980 and in the New York Times the following year. So the role contributed to sushi's growing popularity. And it, like I said, eased diners into more exotic sushi options. And since then, sushi chefs have devised many kinds of roles, obviously. And what's funny is it's now considered a, quote, reverse import because it made its way back to Japan from Los Angeles.
The next invention from Los Angeles, the nicotine patch. The nicotine patch was invented by Murray Jarvik. He was a non-smoker and a scientist and a researcher, but he grew interested in the subject of cigarettes, cigarette addiction, nicotine addiction, when he observed the great difficulty encountered by his wife, Lizzie Jarvik of UCLA, in trying to quit smoking. He said he realized that it was an addiction and he published an article in 1970, which was one of the first times that this was really brought to the public. And the the story of this study is actually kind of kind of interesting. At the time, he was a researcher at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, and he taught monkeys how to smoke and demonstrated the links between nicotine and addiction and exploring the effects of medication on the response. So Jarvik took these monkeys with him when he moved to UCLA in 1972 to continue his work. And he experimented with nicotine gum in animals and humans and showed that it reduced the craving for cigarettes. So flash forward to 1984, where Jarvik and his student Jed Rose, who's now the Center for Nicotine and Smoking Secession Research at Duke, they began investigating the possibility of introducing nicotine through a transdermal patch, a patch on the skin. And now... Their interest was peaked. The inspiration for this is because of something called green tobacco illness. It affected farmhands who would harvest tobacco crops in the South. And Jarvik and Rose suspected that nicotine in the tobacco was being absorbed through the worker's skin. And that's why they got their symptoms. So they initially couldn't obtain permission to test this idea on experimental subjects. So they tested it on themselves. Jarvik and Rose put the tobacco on their skin. This is at UCLA and waited to see what would happen. And sure enough, heart rates increased, adrenaline pumped, all the same things that happened to smokers. So they patented the concept 1985 and assigned the patent to the University of California, who licensed it to the company now known as Novartis. And the first prescription nicotine patch made it to market in 1992 and within four years was available over the counter. And yes, nicotine patch, that came from LA. Here's one for you. You ready for this? The electric guitar. Now, the idea of using electricity to create louder instruments existed by the end of the 19th century. But the technology simply wasn't there. It was only during the 20s and 30s that engineers, makers, and musicians began to solve some of these challenges. So it was in the 1920s where a man named George Beauchamp, I think I'm saying that right, B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P, who was born in Coleman County, Texas. He, he settled in Los Angeles. He was a vaudeville performer. He played the violin. He played the lap steel guitar. But he experimented with the creation of electric instruments. So in 1931, he joined with Paul Barth and Adolf Rickenbacker to form a corporation called Roe Patton to produce and sell electrified string instruments. Now, technical details are usually above my head, but try to follow this. He produced what's called an electromagnetic pickup in which a current passed through a coil of wire wrapped around a magnet and created a field which amplified strings vibrations. He introduced it on a lap steel guitar known as the frying pan. And this pickup made this guitar the first commercially viable electric guitar. Production of this frying pan 
The first mass-produced electric guitar began in 1932, and by 1937, Beauchamp received a patent for the electric guitar. By then, the instrumentation and technology was advancing. 1940, an instrument dubbed the Log, the famous Les Paul, mounted strings and pickups on a block of pine to minimize body vibrations. Later that decade, Paul Bigsby and Leo Fender also began experimenting with the solid body design. Now, during its early years, the electric guitar's viability as a true instrument was frequently debated. It's funny because they said that about hip hop. They said that about electric music, but you know how it goes. The instrument's detractors often claimed it didn't produce a pure or authentic musical sound. But country and jazz musicians were the first ones to really pump this. Most notably, a man named Charlie Christian who was one of the first defenders saying that the electric guitar's louder sound and ability to compete with other melody instruments made it memorable and a perfect performance. I mean, the instrument's volume and tones proved particularly appealing to enthusiasts of rock and roll. I mean, isn't that natural? I don't think rock and roll, rock and roll wouldn't be, forget what I think, rock and roll would not be what it was without the electric guitar. And that emerged in the late 50s, early 60s. Even though it was important to other genres, the electric guitar was the heart of the cultural revolution that rock and roll symbolized. And the media, it capitalized on the image of the rock and roller with his slick back hair, his leather jacket, his motorcycle, and his electric guitar. B.B. King, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Rolling Stones, Eddie Van Halen, Slash, Floyd Rose, None of those people would be household names without the electric guitar, which came from Los Angeles. So we're going to go from electric guitar to a helicopter, particularly the newscopter, formerly known as the telecopter. Now, for all of us, helicopter news footage is common. But until problems in sending live pictures from a moving aircraft were solved, Broadcasters simply couldn't show an eagle's eye view of a forest fire or, say, a car chase. But that was when John D. Silva of KTLA made his mark. In 1958, Silva converted a small helicopter into the first airborne television studio. KTLA, that's right, still around, Channel 5. The KTLA telecopter, as it was called, became the basic tool of live traffic reporting, disaster coverage. Remember the OJ chase? Yep, not possible without the telecopter. So how did it happen? Silva had the help of his fellow KTLA engineers, but he mostly worked alone because he wanted to keep it a secret from competitors. Silva worked day and night, stabilizing onboard cameras with a system of shock absorbers and cushions. He designed aluminum parts to replace heavier metals in the equipment. He commissioned an antenna that extended below the chopper to rotate and maintain uninterrupted contact with KTLA's mountaintop transmitter. And what else he did? <laughs> he reduced the weight from 2,000 pounds to about 400 pounds. And he distributed the load so it could fit within this Bell 47G2 chopper that was leased for the project for KTLA. And KTLA, this again, in the 1950s, it was the first commercially licensed television station west of the Rockies, but it faced growing competition. And these network-affiliated stations were getting scoops with mobile broadcast units. And Mr. Silva was fighting to get through the increasingly clogged L.A. landscape. So, the telecopter was intended simply 
to kill the competition. He said, if we could build a news mobile unit in a helicopter, we could get over the traffic, get there first, and get the stories before anybody else in the competition. And that's exactly what happened. KTLA, right in the heart of Los Angeles. Now for one we all know, love, and use, probably more frequently than many of us would admit, the drive through So in 1921, a place called Kirby's Pig Stand in Dallas, Texas, invented the drive-in restaurant where car hops delivered meals. 1931, a franchise there introduced a drive through service that bypassed car hops, but was still primarily for people to eat at the restaurant and no speakers. It was just face-to-face. And the first identified drive through restaurant was called Red's Giant Hamburg in Springfield, Missouri. But again, no speakers, and it was mostly meant for people to eat there on the spot. So enter In-N-Out Burger. Founded by newlyweds Harry and Esther Snyder in 1948, Harry used to visit the local meat and produce markets to buy the fresh ingredients, and it it was a small 10-foot-wide hamburger sedan. Esther, meanwhile, would handle the accounting. They were in Baldwin Park, and they were doing fine business. And though business was good, it wasn't what the Snyders dreamt of. Harry, in particular, dreamt of a world where customers would place orders faster and without leaving their cars. This was 1940s LA. The first freeways had just been built. People loved to drive. So Harry started experimenting in his garage after long days slinging burgers. He was a tinkerer. And tinker away he did. Eventually, he created a two-way speaker system, allowing In-N-Out to become the first place to complete the entire drive through experience. This innovation allowed customers the convenience of not having to leave their cars, not having to speak to an employee face-to-face to place their orders. This changed the world. I'm serious. Think about that for a sec. And what's funny, the king of drive through McDonald's, didn't even have drive throughs until 1975, which, by the way, I got to throw this out. McDonald's drive through Sierra Vista, Arizona, which was near a, a Fort Huachaca military installation. The only reason McDonald's even installed a drive through was to serve military members who were not permitted to get out of their cars while wearing fatigues on duty. So that's interesting. But it came from Los Angeles. Thank you, Harry and Esther Snyder and in and out Now, we go from a drive-through to a place where you have no choice but to drive in and park. The supermarket, which was also invented in Los Angeles. Specifically, 1926 by L.A. grocer George Ralphs. Yes, of Ralphs. No apostrophe. The last name was actually what you'd call plural, Ralphs. Now, Ralphs is a gold standard for another reason. It actually opened in 1873, which makes it the oldest grocer in the United States. But it was a standard grocery store. Bulk dry goods, fresh produce, and lodging for farmers and stables for horses. Again, this is a different era, but it's 1873. So by 1926, as Ralph's was expanding, George Ralph saw the car starting to dominate Los Angeles. Again, this is because of the car. This is LA. So we built the first supermarket. What does that mean? It offered its own parking lot, not street parking, a selection of fresh meats, an in-house bakery, the first private labels, and this is important here, an environment more amenable to middle-class women. 
brighter, cleaner, a place where people would want to shop. Now, at that point, Ralph's was thriving, but most of its stores were driving groceries attached to gas stations. And that was the theme of the time. They offered flour, canned vegetables, stuff like that. Now, this was a transitionary period. You got to remember people still had horses. There were real cars. There were street vendors that were coexisting with all this new technology like the car. And the problem was exacerbated in LA because one quarter of the city's residents at this point already owned cars. Compare that to New York, where only 5% owned cars by 1920. So the LA consumers struggled to use their car to run daily errands. There were simply too many. You'd have to go pick up your vegetables here, your bread from a baker, your flour from a chain place. And people simply couldn't park a car in these urban neighborhoods and buy everything they wanted at once or forget the parking. They didn't, didn't want to go place to place to place. And this seems like a no brainer now, but George Ralph's and Ralph's were the first ones to establish this. At almost 10,000 square feet, this new Ralph's was much larger than the Ralph's drive-ins. It was much larger than any grocery stores at the time. The selection was incredible. Again, produce, meat, dry goods, sizable departments. And again, it was a standalone warehouse type structure with its own parking lot. And unlike other grocery stores, it wasn't tucked into a residential neighborhood or attached to another commercial structure. This was standalone. So soon, Ralph's had imitators across LA and eventually the entire United States. Supermarket changed people's social aspirations, their culinary tastes. It changed the way society suburbanized. Looking for a sanitized and highly curated environment, homemakers flooded stores, especially after World War II, drawn in by the promises of modernity and abundance. And again, this all came from Los Angeles. Los Angeles really changed the world, people. These are just some of the inventions. I mean, come on. This is amazing stuff here. And you know what else is amazing? A cheeseburger. Guess where that came from? That's right. Los Angeles. LA is a burger town. The birthplace of In-N-Out. Carl's, Tommy's, Fat Burger, McDonald's. And LA can't make the claim that it's where the hamburger was invented but it can make the claim that it's where the cheeseburger was invented. And the dude's name, kid you not, was Lionel Sternberger. Now, Lionel Sternberger was a 16-year-old line cook at a roadside joint in Pasadena known as the Right Spot. And, you know, as many teenagers are prone to do, he wasn't paying attention one day, even when he was working. So one of the burgers on the grill was starting to burn. And to hide this mistake, the Wiley Sternberger slapped a slice of cheese on it. A slice of American cheese, of course. And he called it the aristocratic burger. And he sent it out to the customer. Now, the customer, of course, was delighted. And the cheeseburger was born. And the next day, the aristocratic burger showed up as a regular offering on the Right Spots menu at a cost of 15 cents. Now, the name didn't go over too well, so they simply called it a cheese hamburger. But sales went through the roof, and so did copycatting. And Ten years later, a place called Kalen's Restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, gave the sandwich the name Cheeseburger, which they trademarked. And that is the etymology of the actual cheeseburger name. But it was invented right here in Los Angeles by Lionel Sternberger. 
Now, last but not least, invented in Los Angeles, or should I say born in Los Angeles, Barbie. That's right. Barbie was the brainchild of Ruth Handler, the co-founder of Mattel. Her husband, Elliot, was the other co-founder. And now Ruth was inspired by watching her daughter, Barbara, play with make-believe paper dolls of adult women. But she realized there was an unfilled niche in the market for a toy that let little girls imagine their own future. So Handler suggested the idea of an adult-themed female doll to her husband, and he was unenthusiastic. So were the Mattel board of directors. Sandler put her head down, lived her life, continued to run the company. But she took a trip to Europe in 1956 with her kids, Barbara and Kenneth. And she came across a German toy doll called the Bill Lily. It was an adult figure doll of a woman, which was exactly what Handler had in mind. So she purchased three of them. Now, the story of this Bill Lilly is kind of funny. It was inspired by a German comic strip character and marketed as a gag gift that men could buy in tobacco shops, but it became extremely popular with children. So upon Handler's return to the United States, she redesigned the doll with a man named Jack Ryan, and she gave it a new name, Barbie, after her daughter, Barbara. At this point, Elliot and the board of directors were intrigued, so they decided to roll it out at the American International Toy Fair in New York City. March 9th, 1959, which, by the way, is the date used for Barbie's official birthday. Guess what? Not only was it a hit, it was a smash hit. In its first year, 300,000 Barbie dolls were sold. And it was one of the first toys to have a marketing strategy based extensively on television advertising, which was copycatted up and down by every company ever since. But there's still only one Barbie. And that's why there's been more than a billion Barbie dolls sold in the last 64 years. Think about that. Barbie just might be the most famous and popular native of Los Angeles. Wow. Now that was 10 things invented in Los Angeles, but I want to give you a bonus one because this one's kind of close to my heart. The smoothie. I have a smoothie probably three days a week for breakfast, and I love them. And the smoothie was indeed invented in Los Angeles. I'm going to tell you this one real quick. Julius Freed, the Julius in Orange Julius, was a former cigar store owner. And he moved to L.A. from Montana in the early 1900s. And when he settled in L.A., he opened a fresh-squeezed orange juice stall at 820 South Broadway in downtown. This is in the early 1920s. And they were common all over Los Angeles. This is a place of the orange. That's why people were coming west. But it was his real estate agent, Bill Hamlin, who helped create the first real Orange Julius. Why? Because Hamlin felt that orange juice upset his stomach. Too much acid. But he liked the flavor. So he wanted a delicious drink that would settle his stomach. And Hamlin had a chemistry background. So he devised a secret compound of ingredients. All food-based, no chemicals. And he gave this orange drink its smooth, creamy, airy texture with still keeping oranges at the core. And thus, the Orange Julius was born. But how did it do when he rolled it out? Freed, that is. Customers loved it. His sales 
soon 10x from $10 a day to $100 a day. That's astronomical now. And people would ask, give me an orange, Julius. And that's how the name was conceived. So Hamlin, Freed went into business and they formed the General Citrus Corporation and they leased locations throughout the country making money on franchising and real estate. And it's amazing because that's all they sold. And Orange Julius, by the way, is still around today. You can find them in most Dairy Queens. I go to the one in Glendale when I really have a hankering for the Orange Julius, which is, by the way, the classic and my favorite flavor. And yes, the smoothie comes from Los Angeles. So that was episode 25 of In a Minute with Devin Lovett. I am extremely grateful for everybody to continue listening. And I want to thank you for joining me on this exploration of our amazing city. If you like the podcast, please give that five-star rating. If you love it, leave a review. It is super helpful as we continue our march up the charts. And don't forget to follow and subscribe. Thank you again for supporting In A Minute with Evan Lovett. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.